Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Joseph Boot. I went by the field of a slacker and by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. Thistles had come up everywhere. Weeds covered the ground and the stone wall was ruined. I saw and took it to heart. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber, your need like a bandit. Thank you, Joe. That's uh, that's from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 24, beginning at verse 30. 24, verse 30 and following. Thank you. Well, good afternoon, good day, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris. I am joined by Dr. Joe Boot and another special guest who we'll get to in just one moment. We're here live on location. I guess this isn't live, but we're live around the table <laughs> uh, on location here at the, uh, the Ezra Institute's Worldview Youth Academy 2022, just over halfway through the program. And it has been really a spectacular time. We have been... Uh, been impressed with the the quality and the uh, the inquisitiveness of the the students who are with us. We want to thank all of the the parents who have uh, who have sent them uh, sent us your children, trusting them to us for this week. It uh, we hope it's been a blessing to them. It's uh, it really has been a uh, a joy to to be together. Uh, the instruction has been excellent. The weather has been beautiful. And God has been very kind to us this week. That lake looks marvelous today. And the lake is just lovely. Yeah, it's a good comment. We should, uh, <laughs> we should start doing video so that uh, they can see what we're seeing. But maybe we'll get to that uh, in a following season. Soon. So that's the, uh, that's the Worldview Youth Academy happening now. And if you missed it this year, don't worry. We're intending to... Uh, to run them again uh, in following years in uh, on location here in Port Colborne as well as uh, in other areas. So that's uh, that's this week. We are pleased to be here, and we are very pleased to welcome Jonathan Wellam on the show. Uh, Jonathan has not been on uh, on this show before. He's been a lecturer at uh, at the Worldview Youth Academy, at the Runner Academy, at several other programs. He's been a, a friend of the ministry for some time. Jonathan is the uh, the founder and CEO of Rocklink Investment Partners. And for the past 30 years, he has been uh, just stewarding the uh, the pocketbooks of God's people and doing a, uh, a wonderful job bringing clarity, bringing uh, soundness, bringing uh, growth increase and profitability to, uh, to his clients. And we've uh, we had the opportunity to have you uh, lecture to our students today. We thought that we would uh, get in touch here and uh, and have you broadcast to our uh, our wider listening audience. So, Jonathan, thanks a lot for being here. It's a privilege to be here, Ryan, and also to be with uh, Joe. And I really enjoyed it. What a wonderful group of young people. Amen. Uh, Joe, I'm going to uh, 
kick it over to you to uh, interact with Jonathan on some of the uh, the economic questions that uh, that we've been mm-hmm. going through, and I'll uh, I'll chip in where I can. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for being here. As we've said, it's been great to have you, and um, great to have you lecturing to the students. Um, uh, it's not this is not the first time, as Ryan said, and uh, it's always uh, insight insightful material that you uh, you bring to bear. And um, I probably bend your ear too much on these occasions. Personally, as soon as you arrive and we sit down for some food to get your analysis of what's going on and uh, your counsel and advice and so on. So (laughs) get the best uh, picks. That's right. So uh, um, no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah. Um, So uh, but today I thought, you know, with this opportunity for the podcast, you know, economics is one of those areas that Christians don't think a lot about generally. They don't see it as that important. And um, I think obviously when uh, uh, when hard times come and there's difficulties and um, money isn't as cheap as it was and food is costing more and gas is costing more, then people's minds maybe go a little bit more to their, their, their pocketbooks, their bank balances. But even then, very often, it's just in terms of our personal circumstances, not in terms of a biblical world and life view. And as you know, the Ezra Institute is concerned with the Christian philosophy of life, its vindication, a biblical world and life view. And of course, that applies to economics. There is a Christian philosophy of economics. And um, it's become an increased interest of mine over the last few years to give more focused attention to, to this particular area. Now, you know, I've just rattled off a few things there. These are by any standards, unsettling times. We've just come through two years of, uh, two and a half years of um, a, uh, lockdowns and various measures in response to a virus. Uh, we've seen the lockdown of the, um, effectively of the economy, really. We've seen a massive, I think almost a five-fold increase in the money supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong there. Uh, and uh, inflation is uh, heading towards uh, double digits. Uh, we're seeing um, people beginning to f- uh, find that the, the cost of fuel and the cost of food is really biting. Uh, there's uh, there's instability in various parts of the world because we've also we're also dealing with um, uh, conflict in the Ukraine that's adding to people's concerns and worries. Um, looks like the U.S. dollar is being seen as a bit of a, a bit of a hedge at the moment, and so uh, the 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 value of the U.S. dollar over against the Canadian dollar and the British pound uh, is uh, is is strengthening. So people are clearly concerned. They're getting worried. Um, we've got incredible debt load, both both um, personal debt levels, but also national debts. And um, uh, I know that uh, you've been covering the fact actually of late that uh, back in, you know, 1960, about 15% of GDP was uh, what the government, uh, the, the share of GDP of government spending was about 15%. And now we're up around 52% in Canada. Mm. Um, these things, to, you, know, you look at them, you think, how is this sustainable? H- how is uh, the current model, the current economic model sustainable? So, you know, when, when, a, when, a, when a clear thinking man like yourself with a biblical world and life, who manages wealth and money, uh, comes into the room on a day like this. <laughs> There's all kinds of questions in, sell, sell, in, people, <laughs> in people's minds, you know, of what to do. But actually what we need is, is biblical clarity. We read a proverb there about uh, 
um, the the need for um, hard work, not being a slacker. Uh, you know, increasingly we see people want to head to uh, uh, early retirement. They don't want to go into work, but, uh, partly using the whole COVID thing as, as an excuse. You find in Europe, people don't want to work five days a week. People don't want to go into the office. And yet we want to live like kings. And uh, we don't want to see our, our lifestyles and our foreign holidays and all of the things that many people are accustomed to uh, disappearing. So, Jonathan, speak into this a little bit for us. In terms of all this in a time of great economic uncertainty, how do we think about both uh, protecting and building uh, wealth? And how do we generally think about economic life from a biblical worldview perspective? Because surely more people right now than on average are being confronted with some serious economic questions right now. Yeah, I mean, that, that, there's a lot of questions there. Of course, you're, you're asking some some big issues. Let me back up a little bit, sort of where you began. And I think the fact that Christians haven't been involved in economics and have not really thought about the economic area to the extent that they have is some of the reasons why we're in this trouble in the first place, that you've got a secular humanistic um, governments that have advanced policies and procedures that are antithetical with you know Christian principles and the way we should be ordering our financial affairs. And so they, and they've stretched that to such a limit where we've grown the economy, but we've grown it by using too much debt, too much spending, irresponsible uh, financial transactions, um, in some cases, um, offshoring some of our investments to countries and just see if we get cheap labor. There's nothing really long-term sustainable in any of that. And the government growing through the whole period so that you've had this massive expansion of the state, which is crowding out the private sector and uh, putting costs up, inefficiencies, and so on. And so the whole, you know, basically if you go back to the last three, four, five, six decades, you've had this massive expansion of the state. You've got a social welfare system that has become exceptionally large and impossible to fund. And as you pointed out, um, you know, the debt levels have increased. So basically, if you look at the debt levels in any of the developed countries, they've probably, um, you know, back of the envelope, tripled to four times in the last 25 years. And you're, you're getting debt growing at at least twice the GDP growth. And this has been going on for 30, 40, 50 years. And so it's absolutely impossible to maintain that. And, uh, and so we've got debt that's at very large levels. We've had the government interfere with the, um, the, 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 you know, the dropping of interest rates so that we've also had record low interest rates. And this has allowed the whole leveraging of the economy. Mm-hmm. But there's a false wealth there because it hasn't been driven by really productiv- you know, heavy productivity gains, manufacturing, um, financial accountability, stewardship of the resources, and so on. And so we find ourselves, when we got to the issue of COVID, all of a sudden we have this economy, it's highly leveraged, we got way too much debt, the government's too large. And the next thing you know, we've got this virus that, uh, you know, they supposedly, we need to lock down the economy. So then they decide they're going to shut down, you know, large portions of the economy, double, triple, quadruple, and as you pointed out, five times, increase the money supply by five times. In the United States, the money supply went from about, you know, one and a half to $2 trillion up to almost $10 trillion today. In Canada, it went from $110 trillion to uh, $110 billion, I should say, to um, uh, $510 billion. And, um, and so you've got this, you know, and, and you've, you've destroyed many private businesses, private enterprise. Mm-hmm. And then we wonder why at this point, 
after we've violated all these economic principles that the scripture gives us, we've increased the state, we have increasing social welfare, people don't want to work, we've got these pensions and all of this, and then we get into printing of money and shutting down the productive um, enterprise, so you're not producing you know, goods and services at increasing levels, then you get all this money floating around. The velocity starts to pick up and you wonder why you're getting inflation. Mm -hmm. Well, of course you're going to get inflation. At the same time, as you know, with the lockdowns, they interfered with our supply chains. Mm -hmm. And some of those supply chains probably were too dependent on countries that were untrustworthy anyway, like China in the Far East. And uh, But that's interfered with supply chains. So we're not getting the same amount of goods and services. It's increased, you know, it's uh, interfering with our, our, our productive capabilities. So we, again, we have, you know, we can't get products. So people just start bidding up what you can get. Mm -hmm. So you get more inflation. Now we've got the issue, as you pointed out, with Ukraine and um, in Russia, which is interfering with fertilizers, with food production. So now we've got the issue of uh, food and energy costs mm -hmm. going up. Um, and so, yeah, it really doesn't surprise you that when you when you compound, you put all of these things, you start layering them on top of each other. We have created a major, major economic um, problem, and yeah. uh, it's not going to get it's not going to be easily solved. Can you remember an, an economic? Um, I mean, we're, we're pro most people will remember with some clarity the subprime crisis in two thousand and eight. Mm -hmm. Um, and what happened to some of the banks um, and the correction that happened there. I mean, we the the whole um, uh, economic insanity of the last uh, the decisions that were being made over the, you know uh, I think of the UK's decision to put people on furlough and all the massive spending yeah. that was going on. Um, I mean, if you uh, how, how would you rate the current economic crisis in terms of your you know, as we look back over the last hundred years, almost back to the, the the depression and what took place there, and of course there was that period in the in the eighties as well, where we had um, massive increases in 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 interest rates. Um, how would you rate where we are today? Because at least back then, we we were we, in in fact go back far enough. We still had the gold standard. We didn't have the degree of statism we've got now. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the degree of money printing we've got now. Um, wh wh where are we at on the on the scale of one to ten here in sort of in terms of economic crisis before some sort of major correction happens that is really shocking to people? Yeah, I think we're very high. We're very close to we're very close to ten. We're a lot closer to ten than we've ever been. If you go back to the seventies, we had stagflation, we had inflation, and so forth. But the debt levels were one quarter of what they were now on a per, per GDP basis. So the debt levels, you could actually Paul Volcker in the United States, the Federal Reserve, he cranked up the interest rates. You could crank them up because you didn't have the debt levels. Right. Right now, our debt is so high that every one percent increase in the interest rate is very, very detrimental to the economic growth. And so we really can't afford to have interest rates go up much more than they are without serious decline in real estate, defaults, um, write-offs, delinquencies, um, very much of a slowdown in the economy. I would I suggest that it'd be virtually impossible to avoid a recession by the end of this year, mm -hmm. particularly if they continue to increase the interest rate. So I think when you overlay you know, the financial crisis, the tech bubble, going back to the 70s, to the stagflation and all of this, it's all been building up. And so we just continue to add more debt. The central banks have become more and more aggressive every time there's been a crisis, printed more money, lowered the interest rates more and more. We've never had interest rates at zero for basically 12 years. 
If you're in Europe, interest rates actually went negative. Yeah. So you actually had nominal interest rates. So forget about adjusting for inflation. I mean, nominal rates were below zero. You had $15 trillion of government bonds trading at negative yields. So that if you bought that bond, you're going to get back less at the end of it. And that's, again, forget about inflation. Um, when you add inflation, it's even worse. So you've got to say the system has become palliative, right? So in order to keep it going, they've, they've had to pump money in, keep rates low. So now, it's on life support. It is on life support. And now, so if you add inflation, yeah. which is what we're getting now, up into, I mean, we've had inflation, but it's pretty hard to avoid. So just for our listeners who are, we've, are the, we've got a very diverse audience. Some will be very economically literate. Some will be less so. Just very quickly explain for us, the, 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 in simple terms for people, inflation, stagflation, and recession. Right. Well, well, inflation is, is simply when you know the price of goods are going up in you know real terms. So that um, you know if you you know you know if you've got oil was trading at two dollars a gallon, it goes to two fifty, two sixty, and it continues to go up, and that's an that's an inflation. I mean, ultimately, if you're in a healthy economy, you should not see inflation. If anything, you should see a slight deflation and become more productive. So, inflation increasing price levels. Um, stagflation is when you are getting increasing price levels, you're getting inflation, but no economic growth. And that's a terrible position to be in because that really starts to squeeze people. At least if you're getting economic growth, it offsets mm -hmm. some of the impact of inflation. We saw that in the 70s, um, the stagflation. And then you, the other... Um, recession. Recession. Well, I mean, recession is when you actually have negative economic growth. And that's, in, that's adjusted for inflation. So real economic growth adjusting for inflation. And the technical definition would be two quarters or six months in which you had uh, uh, the GDP actually go down. Mm -hmm. It's important to, to note that in the first quarter this year, the U.S. already saw slight negative growth um, in terms of the uh, GDP. And it's looking like the second quarter is going to be flat or maybe slightly negative. So technically, from an economics perspective, by their definitions, you've got um, probably negative economic growth. Um, and that's when you adjust for inflation. Now, when you think about that, if you've got an economy growing at, uh, say, 3%, but your inflation is 5%, that means mm -hmm. you're actually shrinking by 2 mm -hmm. Because remember, the GDP is, 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 is just capturing the total value of goods and services. And that's then gross you, domestic product GDP, yes, right? Yes, that's right. Then you have to adjust it for inflation. I would argue that if you actually took the real inflation numbers that people really see day in and day out, food, housing, even over the last five, six, seven, eight years, I think it's substantially higher than the government reports. I mean, the government says 2%. They always come out with this 2% kind of, um, it's almost fiction. But I think mm. most people think that their inflation level has been higher than 2%. Say it's been three or four. If you were actually adjusting your GDP by a higher inflation rate and the government uh, was keeping it a little bit lower, that means our actual growth over the last number of years has been even less. I think that's what people are feeling because if you live, I mean, we're in Ontario mm -hmm. and you think of the standard of living in Ontario with the housing prices going up, food prices going up, energy costs going up, school tuition going up. I mean, so many things going up. Incomes have, n there's no way they're keeping pace yeah. with that. And I think the standards of living have continued to erode and that's largely, again, because we're not productive. We're not actually creating wealth. The government's too large. It's squandering too many of the resources. It's too large. As you pointed out, as I mentioned in my lecture, um, the, the expenditures of government as a percentage of our total value of goods and 
services produced in a year, GDP, is over 50%. Yeah. It's just way too large. You cannot run that kind of public sector and have a growing, vibrant private sector. It's mm. impossible. And Makes so, you think they don't really want a growing uh, uh, private sector that's bringing people prosperity and a strong middle class. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> well, when you look, if you look at the energy policies, yeah. um, one of the key components to driving an economy is low energy costs. And if you have policies that are all driving energy costs up, I think it, that's a fair comment. I don't think they really want a growing prosperous mm. economy. They want you more dependent on the state. I think there's no mm. question about that. You don't shut down pipelines. You don't shut down the production of energy um, and then say you're doing it for environmental reasons and then go buy that same energy from, from countries that are uh, have yeah. no environmental standards. Yeah. Um, you know, it does makes absolutely no sense. And I, I agree with that. I think the government... Um, is trying to put costs up and trying to make it tougher for us to drive their agendas. Yeah. So in this kind of a situation, which, uh, you know, on, on, on the, we're trusting the Lord, we trust Christ, we know he's at the wheel of, of history. But some of, the, some of these economic realities are, are, are quite apocalyptic. And when you look at the ideology driving it, it's certainly, you know, people's hearts can fail them for fear in these kind of mm-hmm. situations. So Jonathan, just help us with, in, in, in response to the sort of, economic insanity that we're seeing and some, some of it is, is driven by this sort of uh, larceny uh, in, in people's hearts, envy, um, the, the, a lot of the social agenda is driven by that uh, covetousness. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, of course, um, other forces that think that there is a, that you can violate God's economic norms with impunity. So why, why don't you just, just talk to us a bit about for Christians as we think about economic issues, what would a, a biblical approach to these questions to economic life, for example, monetary policy, um, what would it actually look like? How, how I mean, in, in some respects, we could look back 150 years, 100 years, and see what a, a more Christianized view of economic life actually looked like. Um, but where are we going wrong? How would the biblical worldview bring a corrective to this? Yeah, I mean, in, in so many different areas. I mean, it would really be a rewriting of most of the economic policies. But I think if you just take the issue of, um, you know, their money and currency, I think that you would uh, fold. I, I think you get rid of the central banks. We don't need central banks. Um, and the, the money supply should be kept um, stable. And um, you don't need an increasing money supply. If you have a growing and prosperous economy, the money supply is adequate. What would happen is you get a dropping prices. Just, mm-hmm. just as you, if you really look at the most productive area in terms of efficiency the last 20 years has been technology. And we can see where despite inflation, your MacBook Pro or whatever, your computers and all that sort of stuff, the price has gone way down. And that's what right. you see a deflation in many, in some mm-hmm. of these areas, you've actually had deflation. That's because of massive productivity gains. Yes. But if we had a stable currency and that currency should be backed by collateral, in other words, there shouldn't just be a government promise. There should be a, a counterparty. There should be a collateral base in my view, because that brings discipline. Mm-hmm. If you have to have collateral behind it, you can't just print it and expand it at will, which is what's happening now. And you, that's really a stealing from people who ultimately have the you know, own the productive assets now because you're giving people claims against their their ownership, their you know the goods and services in the economy without any work for it. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to get bid prices up in inflation. So I think a couple and of people things- don't often people don't understand that when you have inflation, the provident those people who have saved who have worked hard and tried to uh, be responsible economically, 
debt is de- indebtedness is what's incentivized and favored and actually the value of people's savings d- begins to disappear mm-hmm. yeah well you saw that with the low interest rates that was punishing savers and rewarding debtors mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a that's a misallocation of capital and it's also a transfer of wealth mm-hmm. And so it's rewarding people who are going into high, you know, highly levered situation. Of course, the biggest debt is the government. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that is a stealing from um, savers. And if your money, if you think about it from a biblical perspective, you go back to weights and measures and responsibility. Your money should maintain value. If you are working and laboring and you're getting paid a wage and you're sitting and holding that wage in you know, currency of that day and the currency we have, and the longer you hold it, it just becomes less and less and less, and it can't hold the value of your labor. That's a system that is improperly structured. Mm-hmm. And you can ultimately argue it's immoral, if it's, if it's, especially if it's falling at a rapid rate. And so monetary situation, you should have a, you know, a money system that would be collateralized, so there's discipline. Um, it should be competitive. Um, you should not have a supply of money increasing at a, a rapid rate at all. Um, certainly, um, the, you know, it should be you know, much less than the pr- pr- production within the economy, um, or you're going to, again, get inflation. You're going to encourage debt. See, the other thing, the other structure we have in our system is that you can write off interest against taxes. So mm-hmm. we, have this, we have this incredibly um, onerous tax system. We have its, uh, its r- rapacious tax levels. Yeah. But what do you write off if you're a business or a per- You can write off your interest costs on your debt. And so this is a favoring of the debt. Incentivizing debt again. It incentivizes debt. So we have a whole system that incentivizes borrowing and living beyond one's means. And uh, some of that should be rethought and completely restructured that why should you write off interest no you should be more disciplined what they should get rid of is capital gains taxation and yes they, should, they and they should they should not punish people who take capital invest it grow it expand that value and then tax a, p- a portion of that productive uh, growth in the economy um, and reduces so, people's uh, desire to take risk and, and step abs- out which absolutely. also reduces the economy Absolutely. So when you look at the situation today, if you wanted to deal with the situation today, you'd automatically firm up the money, uh, mm-hmm. value of it, the stability in the money. You'd also then look at decreasing regulations. So you'd free up businesses so that they can do their business and their work and there's less frictional costs, which then um, slow down economic growth. You'd, you'd, you'd make sure the tax burden is as low as possible. So in many, given the, the high tax rates, you try to lower taxes so that that money can be pounded back into the economy. And you would encourage long-term investments by making sure that businesses know that they'll be rewarded by being mm-hmm. able to keep that money and reinvest it back in their business. And this, these are some of the policies mm-hmm. we saw a little bit down in the U.S. with, uh, with the Trump uh, mm-hmm. government, you know, how he wanted money back in the states, repatriate offseas money, get it back in. What are you, what are you going to do with it? Build plants, build facilities, mm-hmm. um, build, you know, create jobs for people. If you're going to create long-term wealth, there has to be capital that's invested for the long-term. Mm-hmm. Governments don't think long-term. They won't allocate long-term. Businesses won't allocate long-term if they fear changes in policy, taxation is going to go up. Um, you see this in the energy industry. They don't trust the Biden government. They don't mm-hmm. trust the Trudeau government. So they're saying, are we going to commit tens of billions of dollars in capital and we don't know what the return's going to be. So you have to take that uncertainty mm-hmm. away if you're going to have a dynamic and vibrant economy. And those, that kind of regulation should not be there in the first place. So you've got this uh, maybe a bit of a chicken in the egg situation, but one of the things you, you said there is that the uh, uh, governments don't favor long-term in, in investing. Um, 
to some degree, governments are res- respond to what they think the people want. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're saying that both governments and people don't tend to think long term. We want instant gratification. So just talk to us a little bit about p- personal and societal attitudes that would need to shift in order to change the government's attitude, not only towards its its approach to spending and investment, but to the size of government, the size of the state, which is surely another big component of a biblical worldview, Christian model of uh, of um, economic life, is that the state can't possibly be this big. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the first thing you do is start to shrink the size of the state. Similar to, you remember back with the UK with Margaret Thatcher, mm-hmm. this whole selling off of what they had nationalized and, and the boom that that created mm-hmm. in the economy. And so, yes, no, you have to shrink the state. The state should not be in the education business. It should not be in the healthcare business. It shouldn't be in a whole host of areas. Yep. And you turn that back over to the private sector and the efficiencies there. So there's no question you would um, you would drop the size of the state. It's become too large. And it's in without competition, as we know, in a fallen world, um, human beings thrive on competition. Mm-hmm. So competition within a legal system uh, where there's accountability, that's what really, really drives an economy. We need that little knife in the back, if you will, that mm-hmm. pressure on us to compete. If you have monopolies or you have oligopolistic situations where you don't have a lot of competition, then the efficiency, the effectiveness of uh, those institutions will go right down. And so the first thing you do is you shrink government, you make it more, much more competitive, open up the areas, get them out of a whole host of areas, and uh, you'd see a boom in economic growth. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no question about it. So to, to, to shrink government, though, you need a population that stops demanding bread and circuses, don't you? Yeah, no, there's no question. People would have to see... Well, first of all, they'd have to, uh, first of all, I mean, from a Christian point of view, we should actually see that we do not want government uh, as a large entity because not only do they run different areas of uh, industry and businesses inefficient, inefficient, you just have to go to the, the Ministry of Transportation, you just have to go to our passport offices. I mean, you just go down the list of things that they're involved in and you see just gross inefficiency, the postal system and so on. Um, so you have to have a population, you know, clearly that believes that they have responsibilities, mm. um, and those should be handled and by the, the private, freedom, private right? sector. And mm. they, yeah, and they, and they want freedom, and because what happens in those areas, is, as you, as Ezra Institute, and you know very well, is it's that encroachment, it just keeps encroaching until then it's getting into the area of all areas. So you don't respect the sphere of sovereignty, so you mm. got the state. Everything runs through the state, including the family, the church, yeah. the corporation. Everything gets assumed in the state. And so we have to stop that. And the only way you can do that is you starve the government of finances, Mm -hmm. which means you have to cut the taxation, cut their involvement in the economy. Um, And people, I guess the argument should go forward is that people will be far better off. That's the irony of it. Actually, you will be far better off, which we've seen wherever you have denationalized or sold off um, enterprises, the efficiency and effectiveness of those businesses go straight up those industries. Mm -hmm. And people have to start to see that actually they're being hurt by the government getting in these areas. And Mm -hmm. uh, that can be a tough argument because there's a certain percentage that just want a handout, do not want Mm -hmm. to work. Um, But they're actually being hurt by that. I mean, you take the Ontario healthcare system right now. I mean, there's so many queues, it's so inefficient, it's not working for anybody. No, it's not working for anybody anymore. So at some point, people have to sort of say, well, shake their heads and go, we've got this massive debt in Ontario. It's just massive. What do we have to show for it? A healthcare system that's breaking down and becoming worse and worse every day. That doesn't mean all the people in it are bad. We've got some great doctors, great technology, but for what we're paying, 
the delivery is horrible. We have an aging demographic, so it won't be, you know, it won't be able to support. No. So you take that as an example and you go, if this is the best that they've got, we've got serious problems here. Mm -hmm. And um, if we go through another lockdown or another health crisis, good luck. I mean, it's, it's going to be one big mess. Well, let's, um, let's just pick up on a couple of, um, uh, of sort of modern issues that are profoundly affecting economic uh, attitudes to economics, monetary policy, and, um, and, and sort of look at the way in which they may be considered just for a few minutes, the way in which they really are counter or anti-biblical, anti-scriptural. So we've got these two, two issues. Let's just take one at a time and, take, and spend a couple of minutes on each. Um, first of all, ESG. Mm -hmm. um, which this, this this whole notion of environmental uh, social governance that basically seems to be this this massive uh, new area of regulation essentially that is um, uh, saturating and stifling and almost suffocating um, uh, business um, and it seems to be a kind of and well it is it's it's a kind of counterfeit dominion mandate. Instead of man being, uh, uh, as God has called him to be, productive, to, to rule and subdue, to develop the, 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 the depth of the riches of the resources of the cosmos that God has given to us and this earth that he's given to us, there seems to be uh, uh, the, 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 um, the notion that, well, we're used to the government taxing everything, the death tax, inheritance tax, everything tax everything that moves, and now they want to tax the air effectively and, and introduce new levels of regulation that's stifling business. Can you can you just explain for us a little bit more what, what is what is the nature of ESG and how does this really move against the biblical mandate? Yeah, this has become a massive issue, um, ESG, environmental social governance, and it's really a catch-all for pushing the climate change agenda. You know, it used to be global warming. Of course, they can't really prove global warming. So now it's just climate change, mm -hmm. right, as we know. And so it's really, you know, how do we, how do we um, uh, take over, basically, and control more power, exercise more power over the economy, over the creation? In terms of a Christian worldview, yeah, I mean, we come from, a, from the Christian point of view that man is to have dominion over mm -hmm. the earth, that the earth doesn't have dominion over us, which is, you know, when you look at it from their perspective, that the earth is filled with tremendous, tremendous resources and bounty that would that can suffice if it wasn't for sin to, to feed and to look after and provide for three, four times the population mm -hmm. that we have in our world. Mm -hmm. um, but now you've got this whole agenda of climate change, of uh, sort of shrinking the population that you know that we're cancer on the on the earth mm -hmm. that um, that the earth can't support us that you know everything's scarcity 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 it's complete opposite of what God has told us we don't procreate we don't need more we don't want more children we want to have you know very small families that this is the whole thing of turning man into a big zero right you get these expressions like net zero we've got to hit net zero we've got to have zero population growth zero economic growth carbon neutral carbon neutral yeah. yeah. Exactly. And it's the antithesis of a biblical worldview, and it's, and it's a lie. And so they're, they're putting that forward, and it's, it's been picked up by the whole corporate sector. And uh, it's been picked up by um, every, all the major banks are picking this up, all the major you know, Fortune 500 companies. This is being embedded in everything they do, and it's all about 
um, you know, um, their impact on the environment. And, uh, and it's, it's uh, you know, fossil fuels, decarbonization, mm -hmm. as you say, this net zero approach. But after all said and done, it's a rejection that we actually have lots of bountiful things in the earth and that uh, burning fuel is not harmful to the environment. That CO2, yeah. we need CO2. I mean, you actually, mm -hmm. un when you uncover and look at what they're saying, it's a complete lie. Mm -hmm. um, we have the resources. We can develop much more resources. And uh, Trees eat CO2, and it's actually been greening the planet. Greening of the planet makes the harvests bigger. Food prices go down. Uh, energy absolutely. costs go down. And the poor of the earth eat well, and their standard of living goes up. And you think, I mean, I'm speaking in the Canadian context here. We have more trees planted now than we did 100 years ago. We have cleaner water systems than we had 40 years ago. We have uh, the, you know, the oil sands and that reclaim the properties. Mm -hmm. We've got, uh, I mean, the, the whole forestry industry, this is a growth industry. It's a renewable industry. Mm -hmm. It's a renewable business. God, every year trees get a little bit bigger. You have accretion of value. And it's just crazy what they're doing. And so we look at this and uh, it's really forcing up the costs, regulation, um, businesses are creating all sorts of new layers of bureaucracy to manage their businesses, to measure the so-called carbon impact, carbon neutral. Um, I sit on the endowment board of a, a local university and it, the whole preoccupation is how do we on this, in this portfolio, get zero carbon exposure. And so, and, and, and it's, it's, it's so bogus because ultimately we need carbon, we need fossil fuels. <laughs> And um, this, just because you don't buy an oil company and you buy some software company and you think, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person, you still need the oil company to run the economy. And you right. wouldn't have the software company if you didn't have the oil company. How much of the you know? computers and the, the equipment that uh, these software companies need and, and, and use are oil-based products? Yeah. And so what it's doing is it's just driving up the costs of doing business. Mm. So it's creating inflation. It's going to lower our standards of living. And it's going to cause, especially in the agriculture, agricultural area, shortage of food, mm -hmm. starvation in parts of the world, um, less development in third world countries if they can't get the, the, the cheap energy sources. And so when you look at this, this is actually um, reversing the last couple hundred years mm. of progress in much of the Western world and in the world in general in terms of economic growth. And I'd argue you're going to get a, um, a, a deindustrialization right. is really what's going to take place. Our standards of living are going to drop precipitously if we allow them to get away with this mm -hmm. um, because all of the costs are going to go up and the yields on our, our agricultural um, lands mm -hmm. are going to go down. There won't be enough food. And uh, we're seeing this already develop. Yeah. We saw the riots in Sri Lanka. Mm. We've seen the, the yeah. Dutch. It's always going to be the world's poorest who suffer the most. Absolutely. And, the, and these these hypocrites, uh, these elite hypocrites, do this in the name of helping the planet and supposedly helping the poor. Yeah, yeah. And as we know, it's uh, it's really an attack upon God. At the end yeah. of the day, it's an attack upon the lordship of Christ. It's an attack upon Genesis one and two and the mandates that God has clearly given us. They mm -hmm. hate those mandates. They hate the Lord Christ, mm -hmm. and they're going to implement under their guise of this religion mm -hmm. of uh, ESG and climate uh, climate change their their policies, which will be devastating to our way of life and our economy. And, and there will be, as you point out, there'll be certain pockets in the world that are going to be hit much harder mm. and will lead to... Um, if this well, of course, some of them want, uh, what, half a billion people or a, a maximum of a, of, of a billion people on the earth, right? Well, that's that's what they're pushing for. They say that the world, you know, they don't want 7 billion, 8 billion people. They, they much prefer half a billion to a billion people. And they write about it. They talk about it. 
Um, and uh, they, mm-hmm. you know, that that's their ultimate objective. And you say, well, how do you how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, unless you bring in totalitarian control from you know a government level, mm-hmm. and um, and you, when you start to see some of the policies that are being put into play, you can see that these are sort of the um, the early stages, the early innings of how you you know put a stranglehold on the economy, on growth, on prosperity, and then you limit that, and you limit food production and so forth, and yeah, you can start to see this is going to be an issue. I mean, that's why they want. You know, if you get into other moral issues like the abortion, that's why they want unfettered abortion. Yeah. They don't want family, you know, transgenders. No. They don't want family formations. No. Um, they want to emasculate our kids as early as possible so they can't have children. Yeah. I mean, it's just... And euthanize they, the elderly so that we eliminate the cost there. Yeah, yeah. And so it is a culture of death. Yeah. And you see this in the economy too. This is also, you know, bleeding over to the economy, which I think has been a lag. I mean, the economy, If you know, I've been in the investment business for 32 years. And it's really the last 10 to 12 where you've seen the wokeism, the socialism, the this 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 detrimental utopianism. Um, agenda, utopianism, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, going right through the business sector, mm-hmm. right through the corporate sector. They're, mm-hmm. they're basically in line with the government now. Mm-hmm. And it pays for them to be in line with the government because when there's lockdowns, who, who, do they, who, who are the essential services? Yeah. Big corporations. Certainly not the companies. church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> certainly not the church, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, let's let's conclude on this 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 point. Um, uh, MMT. We hear we're hearing a lot now about. Uh, well, you know, you don't need to worry about these kinds of economic <laughs> realities like balancing your books and uh, reducing budgetary deficits and restraining the money supply and dealing with inflation because um, we've got this modern monetary theory that the the norms of economic life that seem to have held since human civilizations have had recorded history and, and we've known about what has happened in economies, yeah. that doesn't apply anymore because governments can just keep printing their own money. Can you can you give us like a a, a one minute, two minute overview of, of of modern monetary policy and how this this basically flies in the face of what God says about money and wealth? Yeah, I mean, you've, you've, you've touched on just a couple of the components there. I mean, it's this theory, the same old lie that just repackaged and maybe delivered out of Harvard Business School. So maybe it's, you know, there's more sophistication to it this time around. But it's this idea that if you, um, you know, if you control the printing press in terms of your government money, then what's the, what's the issue with uh, running large deficits? So you can run unlimited deficits. And you just plug that hole by printing the money and, and paying off the, uh, the debt. And so people look at that and they go, well, that's not going to work. That'll create inflation. But then they come along and they say, well, no, the government um, will make sure that we, we, we have this big productive capacity in some areas of the economy, maybe have the ability to increase that production. And so we'll put money in areas where we think it's less sensitive in terms of putting the prices up. So there'd be less inflation pressures. And so there's this assumption that the government knows how to allocate capital into certain industries, which is, of course, ludicrous. There's no track record on the go- no. any government <laughs> doing that. Where's that work yeah. for? Then they say if you start to see inflation, then the government can just twig the tax rates. So they'll just slow the economy down enough so that inflation won't take place. And so there's this idea that they can micromanage Mm -hmm. and just fine tune exactly where they put the money, the size of the deficits, how to peel it back, how to change tax policy, where to put it in the economy. And you read all this and you think, my goodness, not only is it immoral and that's not the government's role in the first place, they shouldn't be doing that. And and that's the key thing. They should not be doing it, nor do they have the ability to do it. 
And it would be impossible for any um, centralized body of individuals to do that. You see, the beauty of the free market, as we all know, is it's decentralized. And you've got millions and millions and, I mean, literally billions of people making the economic decisions. And that's what we need. The more you centralize the decisions, the poorer those decisions are going to be, the more ineffective they're going to be, and they will become more totalitarian. Mm -hmm. There's no question about it because of the fallen nature of man and sin. Yeah. I mean, the, the complexity of, uh, of the economy and, of course, free markets and production are far too complex for any one individual or group, a cadre of intellectuals to possibly oh. comprehend. And uh, so, so it really, it's a claim to be God, right? That in this area of reality, we're going to have a, a, the notion that a, a, a civil government can somehow manage, stage manage, a whole aspect of created reality as though it is God. Yeah, yeah. And the, the irony is the more educated the folks are, the more dangerous they are. Yeah. And you would, you would trust them even le you know, less. I think it was, I forget the individual said this. He said he'd rather just take the telephone book and let those people make the decisions rather than the directory at Harvard yeah. Business School. Mm. Yeah. And because you'd have more collective wisdom yeah. into decentralizing and getting people, um, they, letting them make the decisions. But I think it, from an... The one thing I will say, just as we get to the end here, is that as, as, as investors, I do think as Christians, I mean, first of all, focus on the Lord. We, we do remember he is, he is in control, yeah. regardless of all these challenges. It's critical we keep our eyes on him, and, um, and he will continue to you know, take care of us, bless us. Um, it won't be easy, necessarily, but continue to put our trust in him. And then when it comes to investing, you can't set aside the basic disciplines that the Bible lays out. Put some money aside for a rainy day. Provide for your family. Give to the church. Invest back into the kingdom. Um, but I think when you are investing, be cognizant that there could be erosion of purchasing power. So mm -hmm. buy some hard assets. Keep money in land. Buy If you're buying businesses, businesses that are essential, that are scarce, that have good balance sheets, just be very disciplined mm -hmm. with the idea that if we're going to go through a rough period, I want to be in assets that are going to be valuable through all of that. If they do change the currency or you know, there's a revaluation of currency, you still need land. You still need some of these hard assets, yes. water, food, those sorts of things. So I think it gets, it gets people back to basics mm -hmm. and um, buy what's essential, buy what's scarce, and uh, be disciplined. But it, it shouldn't stop us from being good stewards mm -hmm. of capital because when you look at uh, the billionaires and the ones that are having so much influence, they continue to invest. Yeah. And Christians need to be in the system. They need to be yeah. in the market. They need to be influencing the capital allocation. Have a long-term view. And take a long-term view yeah. because that's... We're taking God's view, mm -hmm. and He's got a long-term view, and so not to run from the market, even though it can be, mm -hmm. you know, a little gut-wrenching from time to time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I know what that's like because you're managing money for other people, yeah. and you get the calls. But we still have to keep our yeah. eyes fixed on the longer term, on the Lord, and don't, you know, and stick to the principles that the Bible lays don't out. Panic and stick to the principles, and, and and reduce our debt as much as we can. Yes. Yeah. Be careful about the debt levels, and then we can have got something to give to others too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, uh, I'm just reminded as you're talking here about the proverb that Joe read at the beginning about going past the field of the sluggard. And it, it just seems to me that our contemporary policies are doing their, doing their level best to, to give the lie to that proverb and to, uh, to incentivize sluggardliness, if that's, if that's a word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, look, the, the yeah. principles, as you say, yeah. the principles don't, don't change no, that, uh, no. 
because mm. they're God's principles. Yeah. Look at our whole lottery system. Mm. I mean, you look at so, so many things that have come up, right? It's to get something for nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not the biblical view. We, you know, the, God's cre- given us a wonderful, creative, resourceful earth. But after the fall in particular, even before the fall, we would still have, would have had to work. But after the fall, it's only going to be developed through hard work and yeah. labor. And we shouldn't run from that. And uh, that's a blessing. God gives us health and strength, and it's a blessing to work and to work hard. Yeah. And uh, and then you know, have earned success in the proper sense of the word. Yeah. Jonathan, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for uh, being with us today. It's been a real pleasure to uh, to have you. Thanks mm-hmm. for sharing with us and uh, for this uh, the chance to sit in on this conversation. Wish you uh, all the best in uh, in your business. Uh, thank you for the uh, the time you've had here. And for all of you listening, thanks for tuning in. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation. We remind you week in, week out, that from him and through him and to him are all things. That's Jesus Christ. May he alone be glorified. We'll see you next time.